Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. This special episode of Interpreting India was hosted by my colleague and director of Carnegie India, Rudra Chaudhary. The episode was recorded at the Global Technology Summit 2019 in Bengaluru. The information age has brought with it unprecedented technological progress and development. At the same time, it has raised important philosophical questions pertaining to its effects on society. One such issue that various stakeholders are trying to grapple with today is the question of privacy. We live in a time where our mere existence generates unfathomable amounts of personal data. While states can leverage such information for social welfare, many have raised the concerns about states or large corporations being able to survey large amount of intimate personal data thereby encroaching individual privacy. Can we find a balance between imperatives for protecting individual liberty while not having to compromise on leveraging data for innovation and economic growth to unpack this conundrum we are joined today by Francois Godemont and Ralph Saw Francois a senior advisor for Asia at the Institut Montaigne in Paris he is also a non-resident senior scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington DC and an external consultant for the policy planning staff of the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs Ralph Saw is the deputy head of Director General Justice and Consumers Unit for International Data Flows and Protection at the European Commission which covers data flows both for commercial purposes and in the area of law enforcement cooperation gentlemen it's a privilege to be speaking with you today about this most important issue francois while we were preparing for this podcast this morning the first question i was going to ask you was about the paper that you've written it's a landmark paper it provides us with different structures and architectures about privacy so whether it's china whether it's the eu whether it's the united states and you've got a very thick case study on india i want to hold that question for a second because between this morning and now we've learned that the personal data protection bill or the draft bill that was written up in 2018 in india will be tabled in parliament can you just give us some thoughts on the bill in itself perhaps referring to your own paper but even otherwise i wish i knew the content of the bill of course the final version that's going to be put in front of parliament uh as we stand we are working on what we read uh over the last few years uh two things strike me uh the first that inform in many legal uh aspects it's very close to gdpr to the european uh regulation and yet it has critical differences in two areas one is of course the accent of data localization which has only grown because it's become literally an economic policy issue in india generally and the other one perhaps less often emphasized by libertarians and protectors of constitutional rights have noted it uh is that it's not great on what i could call legal arbitration independent organizations judging on what the indian state can do or cannot do the state leaves a lot of decisions to itself but we don't know what will stay after all for the final draft in your uh, monograph in a sense you argue that india has an opportunity because it's a bit of the crack between the east and the west 
those models on privacy are pretty much determined. There's a top-down model. The United States has a disaggregated model. China has one of complete control. India has opportunities. Space always creates some degree of opportunity in themselves. In your current reading of India, its reading of its economic rise, what do you think is the pathway for India when it comes to privacy, when it comes to working with the rest of the world on global issues of privacy architectures? I think there are, again, two issues there. Uh, one is really the economic opportunity uh, for India. And we heard today about uh, India literally conquering the global south uh, with its own model and its own companies. Uh, and by implication, perhaps less binding rules, less demanding rules than the West. The other part of it is that either you're in or out of what I would call uh, the global data circulation. And people talk about fragmentation and the breaking up the internet, but really there is still one big Western internet that's fairly operative, that's got agreements, let's say, for the sake of simplicity, uh, Europe, the US and Japan critically. Uh, and the question is, is, is India going to be part of it or is it going to go its own way because it thinks it has such a possibility? I think that's a huge question. On that question, if I can turn to Ralph Saur. Ralph, a good part of the GDPR, as Francois made clear, has been used to create the draft bill. It's been used a bit of a philosophical context, if you like, in what will be our privacy bill in parliament. From the GDPR perspective, what's the next step with India? Once the bill gets tabled in Parliament, we'll of course have a clearer sense of what the bill actually looks like. From your perspective, sitting in the EU Commission, what's the next move? This is a law for India. Uh, it's, it's India's own interest. Uh, India is not doing this uh, for the sake of, of any other country, and that includes uh, the economic bloc that the European Union is. Um, of course, we have a, a strong interest in that uh, because... Um, especially the closer uh, that that law is to to our own uh, rules, uh, and I think it, it is an indigenous, it's an it's an own uh, uh, development by by India that that nevertheless shares uh, a lot of uh, uh, commonalities with, with our rules. And, and the closer we are, the the easier it is, of course, to to have data flows between our two. Uh, uh, countries or blocks, um, and and I think we can further work on that. Uh, uh, once uh, India has um, such rules in place, uh, on the one hand, um, it's easier to to work on on maybe contractual tools that that can be used um, that can maybe also uh, specifically adapted. I mean, contractual tools that 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 include uh, um, certain data protection standards, which will be easier for companies now to to uh, fulfill uh, if they have already in their background law very similar rules. Uh, and that can be a transfer tool. Uh, we can also be more ambitious uh, and and see uh, we have in our uh, law. We would see what the Indian law has a tool uh, which uh, is a decision. Um, uh, which basically are finding uh, that uh, the other country um, has a similar standard uh, of data protection. And on that basis, uh, we from the EU side can basically uh, completely lift any barrier um, uh, or any requirements uh, for, for example, contractual tools uh, for transfers between the EU uh, and India. So uh, that's called uh, an, an, an adequacy finding because it's about finding that the, the third country law 
is adequate and our courts have interpreted it as, as uh, very similar to, to our uh, uh, rules. Uh, because then we, we can have uh, the confidence that, that data can travel uh, and will be protected in the same way so it doesn't lose the protection when it, when it goes across borders. And, and that's a very beneficial tool which we have used uh, with a number of, of, of countries in the past. Uh, the latest one was Japan. Um, where there it was even a mutual uh, uh, recognition, if you wish, because Japan has the same tool in in its rules, uh, and it created the the largest uh, area of safe and, and uh, I mean free and safe uh, data flows, and that's of course uh, in today's world highly highly beneficial. Just sticking with Japan for a second, the EU is one of India's largest trading blocks alongside the United States. Logically, one could imagine that once the privacy bill is stable, it becomes law. The next step will be to try and figure out and assess who do we want in our club. That would be the Indian argument. Fact of the matter is, large amounts of trade means the large need to continue to move data between two different jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. From your experience in India, from your experience sitting in Brussels, do you feel that there is an appetite to mimic or ape something like the EU-Japan agreement? We should be clear that, that what the EU-Japan uh, agreement is about, uh, uh, that is uh, a free trade agreement that has a different name, uh, economic partnership agreement, but it's a free trade agreement, which, which of course uh, covers a whole range of issues uh, that a, I would say, second generation uh, type of, of FTA uh, contains today. Um, it, it, it actually does not contain rules on cross-border data flows uh, because uh, there was an understanding with Japan that we would deal with that question under our respective data protection uh, laws. Um, the GDPR in, in the European Union and, and what's called the APPI in Japan. We, we used a separate track uh, based on the understanding that in both countries uh, or economic blocks, uh, data protection is a fundamental right. Uh, which which should not be subject to trade negotiations. It's not something that uh, you can haggle over or, or compromise on easily. Um, unlike maybe whether the tariff for for milk should be ten percent or fifteen percent, uh, or for cars, it's a different thing. So that's why we we use the separate track and 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 the instruments that are available for 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 that particular area. So with India, I think it could certainly uh, uh, talk about, for example, adequacy uh, or other tools. Uh, we have uh, had conversations with the Indian government for, for, for quite some time also on maybe developing specific, as I said, model clauses, data protection uh, model clauses for contracts, which could also uh, be used um, for data transfers. And they can be taken off the shelf, if you wish, uh, if you wish because there would be model clauses that, that are agreed. Uh, they don't have to be renegotiated in, in, in uh, between partners on each occasion. Um, and one could tailor them also to the specific needs of Indian companies. And, and we have reached out to NASCOM, for example, uh, and have asked them to, to, to provide us with input what could be those needs. So, so, so those are, there, there are many options to, 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 to do that. Um, uh, the, the, the free trade agreement negotiations will, I think, remain on, on, on other issues. Um, uh, with the Promises and difficulties, let's say that 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 we face. Um, uh, we very much hope from the EU side that we can also conclude those negotiations. But there's some ways still to go to to get there. Francois, if I could change track a little bit and bring it back to your paper, the part about your paper that struck me the most was your chapter on China, mm -hmm. which had and this is of course terrain that is more comfortable to you than many others across the, in this world. You had a very complicated matrices of how Chinese companies or national champions have managed to survive and profit while being in a particular Chinese model in itself. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Well, of course, you could call it uh, the second uh, industrial cocoon. The first industrial cocoon was uh, practiced by China and other Asian countries after World War II. And China has created, without us fully realizing it, uh, a, a virtual cocoon around its digital industries and market. There are huge differences with India, by the way. Uh, you have enormous data flows with the outside world. China doesn't. That's, of course, the price to pay for having a cocoon. Uh, but China has been able to nurture uh, its own companies. Informally, I would say, to kick out many foreign companies that were active uh, on the market. Uh, and because of WTO, it, it does interfere with, uh, even though services are not included in WTO, but under WTO, we basically accepted an asymmetry where China accesses what we have and we can't access what China has. So as an example, uh, China has gone big uh, with, with, with its e-commerce e e and, and, and increasingly its apps has a huge share of the Indian market. You couldn't have a huge share of the China market. That's something that they have got a, that they've got away with. Second, there is no end to the authority of the state, uh, which means, of course, uh, that we're seeing the worst possible implementation of the digital era in China. The really frightening scenarios uh, are there almost every day for us to see. So it is tempting from the point of view of efficiency for a country like India to say, hey, if the Chinese did it, we could do it. It should be frightening as well to look at the consequences of the policies uh, enacted in China. The current US-China trade war seems more like a symptom of a geostrategic shift. It doesn't seem to be trade, seems to be now a proxy of something a lot more geopolitical, where there seems to be a degree of consensus within the United States that China is a competitor. In this scenario, at this point of time, do you see China wanting to open up, opening up their digital doors to other parts of Asia? Here I'm talking about RCEP, for instance. It's a agreement that India, of course, stayed out of. China mooted. China took the kind of leading position in RCEP, yes. in a sense. Do you see a beginning of a new shift where China may open up some of their data drawbridges to their partners and allies in Asia? RCEP is a very superficial trade agreement that doesn't cover much. It's useful uh, for a lot of primary goods or goods is not so useful in this area. Fundamentally, I don't see China surrendering its main advantage, which is it has negotiated free trade with a very good deal. Uh, for itself. And if it's not surrendering this to the US, I don't see why it will surrender it to anyone else, including the EU, by the way, which is our problem in dealing uh, with China. In terms of data, you have to understand that the US uh, big data firms, the big companies, the platforms have also used asymmetry. For example, Facebook, Google, Twitter, all collect massive amount of ad revenue from Chinese companies that access us, the customers of these companies in the West, while of course our companies cannot access uh, Chinese customers in the same way. So there are people who benefit from the asymmetry on both sides of the fence. And that is something that the uh, current US administration uh, is up against. Uh, it's, it's something that's not yet decided because there are different interests in the US. 
Ralph, from your vantage point and the chair that you hold in the EU, how do you deal with China? Broad question. We are, of course, um, also trying. Um, I mean, we, we see uh, indeed a growing imbalance, I think, uh, that that uh, needs to be uh, addressed, uh, that that data goes uh, to to China. Um, uh, and in the other direction, uh, it's, it's more and more limited. Um, I, I just think we disagree a bit on the means that should be used to address the issue. I think we, uh, as EU, believe uh, and continue to believe in multilateralism uh, and in a rules, rule-based uh, trade order. So we'll try to push, for example, through uh, the WTO or through the discussions on an e-commerce uh, chapter uh, in, a, in a certain direction and, and do this together with other partners, uh, like-minded partners, and step-by-step step, uh, create a momentum which, which will uh, increase the, uh, the pressure to open up the data markets also in China. So it's it's maybe more a question of approach, uh, maybe also of time frame. That that's also true. Uh, uh, some countries like the US try now to leverage the strengths that they have in terms of the the US market to obtain quicker results. Um, but of course, it puts at risk to some extent the uh, the rule based order um, uh, and trade wars. I think are, are are never beneficial for anyone, and and and, and the trade war between. Uh, uh, the U.S. and China is also affecting uh, the EU. Eh? So, so uh, also because China might might uh, redirect some of its trade in in other directions, and and that might also affect uh, the EU. So we're worried about this, but we hope that can address this through the existing mechanisms uh, that, that that we have. Some in India argue that the EU disguises a certain form of hypocrisy. On the one hand, you talk about multilateralism, you talk about China, and you talk about trade drawbridges. But on the other hand, your member states such as France and Germany have increasingly started talking about data sovereignty. France has a digital tax on big tech firms inside of France in itself. How do you square that circle? Or is that just a necessary tension? So I would say that when it comes to um, what's called now sometimes data sovereignty, I think we're more talking about strengthening the um, the competitiveness of of, of the EU and, and, and its companies and being able to compete and still have access also to, to data. And we're trying to address this uh, on the one hand, of course, through uh, the digital single market. Um, so, so to already strengthen our companies by the fact that at least within the EU, which should be an integration organization to facilitate data flows, data exchanges, uh, and, and, and therefore uh, create a better environment for companies. And to do this also through, uh, infrastructure, uh, in terms of cloud connectivity, uh, broadband, talking about, uh, creating uh, supercomputers uh, that become uh, I mean, that infrastructure which is necessary for for artificial intelligence. So, so all of this to create an environment where where uh, European companies that indeed and in some respects in some areas have fallen behind maybe uh, uh, can 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 regain a bit uh, competitiveness. Uh, but it's not about uh, shutting off our markets against other markets. So 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 this will still go hand in hand uh, with openness. Uh, to trade and trade flows and data flows, uh, and, and and when it comes to to uh, digital tax, um, I don't see the, the, the conflict at all. I mean, uh, uh, whether it's good or not that that uh, individual member states uh, do this is that's maybe another question. Uh, and 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 the uh, European Commission certainly has tried to find a European solution to that. Uh, although this was always meant as a temporary solution until we have found a solution at OECD and G20 level. Huh? So that's also to be said. 
um, because we, we, again, we believe in multilateralism and that we should find a solution to digital taxation, um, which is very different from taxation of, of, of traditional goods and, and, and services uh, at, at, a, at a global level. Um, but but, but it, more generally, I think uh, this is about capturing a certain revenue that comes from digital services. And, and there might be a certain imbalance now where uh, that uh, revenue is created and where the profits from that stay. And I think it's a legitimate interest of states to, to, have a, to preserve their tax bases uh, at an age where more and more uh, commerce is done digitally. Uh, we have to be worried or concerned about this and we have to address it. Uh, ultimately, we should address it at, at the global level. Francois? I, I'll answer it a bit differently, although I won't contradict uh, Ralph. But uh, you're the Indian Union. Uh, you have sovereignty. You have a history. You have arrived. The European Union is still under construction. Only a few years ago, the S word for sovereignty was taboo. And it was taboo not for protection, not because we want to avoid protection, but because the member states want to keep full sovereignty or to pretend that they do. In fact, it's shared. It's called competences, but it's shared sovereignty. What we're seeing, and it has a lot to do with the way the world is going, uncertainties about how the U.S. will move. There are issues, as we know. Uh, they're, they're, they're competing with China, but they seem also to compete with everybody else, uh, including in the area of international organizations. Uh, so Europe is sort of gearing up and politicians are getting the public used to use the S word for Europe. Doesn't always mean what you would put into it. I agree with Ralph that a lot of it is just like India for the digital market, knowing that in fact we're weak. We're a huge market, but we don't have big actors of platforms. Yes, the, the, the American firms came first. And they have venture capital. They have a lot of advantages. They sometimes use tax shelters elsewhere. The Chinese do too, by the way. Alibaba and others are hosted in the Virgin Islands. Uh, and strangely, uh, the Chinese Communist Party apparently accepts it. So we are starting to react against that. There is a logic to having some of the tax revenue going to where the money is actually made. That's the semi-European and now French, but also the discussion under OECD. There is discussion about policy innovation. There is discussion about financing. How come our best startups usually get bought over uh, sometimes with massive amount? It's very satisfying to the founders, but essentially they leave the EU in terms of capital. So there is a reaction against that, but it's a positive uh, action. Think of it as tooling. And there are critical differences uh, that exist, I'm sorry to say, with the Indian position, particularly on data localization. Uh, we really, I mean, the, the existence of the EU is literally tied to the idea of free exchange within the EU and with the rest of the world and to resolution by law of our disputes. So to come back and to pick on that point about localization, the argument in India, at least amongst many, is that there are four drivers of localization. One is the need to access data. That is law enforcement's argument, is that it is extremely frustrating not to be able to access the data of Indian citizens and Indian residents from foreign on large multi, multi, multinational tech firms. The second argument is economic. There's a very strong sense that if we're able to bring the data home, we'll be able to create better AI, which ultimately will lead to better economic growth. And third argument is about geopolitical uncertainty. And I want to pick on this for a second. The Indian position has been, is the world today is a lot more uncertain than it was five years ago. 
The United States, which was the harbinger of multilateralism, has unplugged itself from a system that it created. Hence, the view is, if we are able to bring data home, if we are able to better regulate the data, which is what the privacy bill will do, we can hedge against these geopolitical risks. And the largest of the question of tax in itself. Given these frameworks, given the fact that capital remains largely in the West, capital remains in Japan, scale remains in India, just the way in which India is designed, its data design is structured, it will continue to work with the world. It is, doesn't seem to be going down the China model. Is there an opportunity for a new multilateral architecture which considers data privacy, data trade, data access, something like a data 20, if you like, rather than the G20? Francois and then Ralph. Unlike you, I tend to take a very simple engineering view. When we talk about data sovereignty, we're ma mainly talking about clouds, which means servers. Uh, if we think, if you think first in India that you're going to match the amount of investment done by those big companies, uh, and in hot and polluted weather, I might, I might add, which adds to the difficulties. If I was to to build, you know, a, a coalition of countries that would have a universal cloud and cloud servers, I would I would choose the Arctic Circle uh, Council members. They might be the best place uh, to implant servers for the world. So, just from the practical point of view, I'm a bit skeptical. So. Of course, if we're talking about critical data, national security data, and I think that's also what Mrs. Merkel, by the way, in Germany had in mind, because there is a story to that, of course, uh, uh, about trust or the lack of trust. And we have the Snowden case, uh, but it's a limited aspect. And even that, by the way, costs a lot. I tend to think that we have to preserve what exists we do have a shaky direction in the United States right now, but we also have a huge legal process to take care of issues as they arrive and, and a history. Uh, I don't think that's going to be broken very soon. What I'm afraid of when I look at the Indian temptation is that this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In fact, you create the fragmented world. You are critical because you are the, the swing country, the huge market that could go either way. So you would still argue that the older tried and tested, the robust frameworks that exist today, so whether that's the G20, whether that's the WTO when it comes to trade disagreements with regards to data, are the bodies of the future? It's going to be a rough road. It's clearly going to be difficult with this administration in the US, and it might still be with the next one. Uh, but I think it's more realistic uh, than uh, creating out of the blue uh, with a set of countries who on top of that are not really at the top of the pile in terms of technical and financial capacity. Ralso? Uh, and I would agree with that. Huh? I, I, I don't think that just uh, renaming it, uh, giving it a different name uh, will, will, will solve the issue. I think uh, we still, um, there's still the need and there will be the need to find uh, multilateral uh, solutions. Uh, I think we have uh, institutions that that have uh, have suited as well over the over the years uh, in, in many areas. Uh, I agree that they are in, in uh, sometimes in, in rough waters uh, these days, uh, but that that has to do with the general climate. We have to work on that. We have to rebuild trust. We have to maybe reform some of these uh, institutions. Uh, I think there is, uh, for example, on the WTO, a clear discussion on 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 
improving, strengthening it. The, the European Union has, has has made proposals in in in, in that regard. Uh, for example, on the WTO panels, which are which are so criticized by uh, by the uh, US. Um, so so that there are certainly ways to Im- Im- improve. Um, but but discarding them um, uh, in the hope that we would find a, I don't know a new and 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 and, and different uh, solution I I also would have my doubts uh, but uh, I think we we should what we need to work on is multilateral solutions also like for example the cybercrime convention that are tested that are applied and that can maybe further expand that so that would be on on, on for example law enforcement access where where this could greatly help and and I don't think we should open up a new way of doing that if we have an instrument we should strengthen. Uh, enforcement cooperation across borders. I think that's also important and will create trust. That can be between data protection authorities. This can be between regulatory authorities. Uh, I think when the enforcers talk to each other, uh, very often what follows is also a certain alignment of, of the rules uh, because these these bodies can shape standards. Uh, they, they can exchange best practices um, and, and, and they can depoliticize uh, issues. And I think that's something which we which you should probably also think about. And uh, when it comes to, to data protection regulation, uh, I mean, I think we as uh, European Union certainly take the position that we should uh, acknowledge a certain uh, a space for, for regulatory autonomy of, of each country. Uh, and at the same time, we believe that you can protect data and yet be open to data transfers uh, by, by putting in place certain, certain transfer tools. Uh, and, and that should be the way forward. You should find a way to... to Adapt your data protection rules to your legal system, your cultural background, your your societal needs. But that doesn't mean that that you have to close uh, doors and keep the data at home. So, and then uh, one can one can on that basis see whether we develop also uh, regional transfer tools, maybe global transfer tools such as contractual clauses or, or certification models that could also help to bridge uh, differences in, that that will exist between uh, data protection systems. Francois. One way to build trust is through certification, through administrative procedures, through government to government. You followed Asia longer than most. In this changing world, where there is a particular ecological shift when it comes to geopolitics, how do we build digital trust? I think we do by asserting three factors. One is accountability of what states or governments do within each system. Uh, Second, uh, we have an and independent regulatory authorities, which are demonstrably independent. And as Ralph suggests, they may not have the same rules in each case, but there is the factor of independence. That's what's missing in the one authoritarian model that we all have in front of our eyes, which is China. And three, there is a need to be open to data flows and to exchange uh, and to redress in each other system. If this is uh, acquired, if this is given, I think we should have absolutely nothing. You know, I would, I would love Indian platforms to create games for our kids uh, and, 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 and to be active in e-commerce and elsewhere. Uh, I would love Indian telcos to be more active outside India uh, that they are. There's absolutely no problem with that. The problem is rules and accountability. And the division, by the way, goes inside Asia. I don't think you can think of Asia as a block in that sense. Francois Godema, Ralph Saw, thank you so very much for being with us on Interpreting India. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India a podcast presented every two weeks by Carnegie India. 
I'm Srinath Raghavan. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. page.